Chapter Martin Pastor James Normally at night there are stars, the occasional shooting star, and even the ever-present moon. However, on this particular night, the darkness didn't have to compete with the light. The light vanished. Its dominance was far deeper than anything ever experienced or imagined. It was as though the heavens themselves turned their back on the earth. Disgusted in what they saw and not wanting to view the repulsive planet they once used to shine upon. The rare blue pearl of the Milky Way was a shadow of what it once was. A world once teeming with life, both on and off land, now sported oceans of dead, rotting sea life. All seafaring mammals and fish coated the entire surfaces of oceans, seas, rivers, and even the smallest of ponds. Nothing was left untouched. A sickening film coated all major water bodies, yielding a sickening, noxious smell. The once blue planet, Earth, was now a ghastly gray globe of death. But the seas only showed half the Earth's epitaph. On the land, billions of wildlife lay decomposing in the hot, unforgiving sun in the temperate zones and completely frozen after their unforgivable deaths in the ice-covered tundra. Lying in collapsed positions throughout major cities and across the globe were rancid remains of what used to be the human race. Neither continent nor the most isolated island was left untouched by the putrid remains of both man and beast. Where the diseased flesh touched plant life, that too withered and died. Insects and bacteria normally assisting in the decomposition of the dead, also perished when coming in contact with the infected. It was a plague that did not leave anyone or anything unaffected. It was complete and utter eradication of all life on the once shining blue marble. No longer was it a planet of such probable rarity in the universe. Once it demanded the light from distant stars to shine on it, and now it forced those same stars to turn in disgust. The only star that continued to shine upon it was from the same solar system. As the planet orbited around it, this star was determined to burn the festering remnants of life off the surface. If biotic decomposition was no longer possible, it would do the best it could to purge the blight and hope that one day, a millennium or two from now, it would recover somehow. What fueled the fire of the sun even more was the presence of the three life forms remaining on Earth. They lumbered around aimlessly, desperately trying to find the existence of some life. Perplexed by what they'd seen and incensed at how they could have been so wrong with their predictions, they'd argued among each other. They went over their plans in detail, leaving out nothing in debate, and yet couldn't understand the results they now walked among. They were cursed to live out an eternity on a lifeless planet, none of them having the fortitude to extinguish their existence. They'd rather live this hellish existence, raiding grocery stores, debating what could have been, while migrating at night to avoid the blistering effects of the sun. A lifeless globe of death left for the three to roam for a millennium. A millennium since the three couldn't die. And immortality, once seen as a blessed gift, was now a hellish existence. Why did they continue to live amongst such conditions? Why did they persist? The question, so simplistic in nature, failed to realize the complementary answer. Why did they continue? They continued because they couldn't conceive the fact they were wrong. Everything they did and strived for was wrong. They were flawed in their presumptions, thus leading to a devastating and ill-conceived result. And it was this they failed to perceive, still driving them forward, hoping to correct what had happened. They will be forever stuck in this deplorable state of a proverbial, indefinite loop. They will never stop devising a plan to reach their goals, no matter how improbable. A soft voice emanated throughout the universe in response to all that was just seen. They must be stopped, it said. 
Time is short. All you have seen will come to pass unless. Pastor James woke up in his bed, slowly rubbed his face, and glanced at the clock. It was very early in the morning, and he had only been asleep a few hours after getting back from visiting Bart. Sitting up on the edge of his bed, he recalled the dream he had just had. Most of it made no sense, but yet again everything within him said there was much more to it than a dream. He got out of bed slowly, so as not to disturb his wife, who was sound asleep, and went to the bathroom to get a drink of water. Once finished refreshing his throat, he dismissed the dream as a result of spending a lot of time with Bart. Pastor James slipped back to sleep without a problem, unaware of how close he was to the truth. Later that morning, Pastor James walked into Bart's hospital room. His friend was still sound asleep, unaware of his presence. The pastor walked over to a chair next to the bed, picked up yesterday's newspaper, and started looking for any articles he hadn't read the day before. Into the second article, he heard Bart stirring in his bed. When he glanced at his friend to see how he was doing, Bart was looking right at him. You're spending too much time with me, James, he said with a raspy voice. Surely you must have other things to do than spending it with me. The pastor smiled. Was his friend finally starting to understand the error of his ways? Many didn't understand why he was spending time with a cult leader responsible for the deaths of so many, but he couldn't help but to show compassion. Is there a requirement for forgiveness, or is there forgiveness for all, despite what they've done? Didn't God forgive Saul, who had put so many early Christians to death? That Saul became one of the greatest writers of the New Testament, Paul. No, thought Pastor James, forgiveness is for all. If one can truly repent and turn his heart from wickedness, then yes, God's forgiveness is sufficient to cover all sins. So, you think you're the only person I visit during the course of the day? Bart, you know me better than that. I am. Happy you're here, but Bart closed his eyes, not wanting to continue. What? asked Pastor James. Breathing deeply, Bart opened his eyes. Every time I see your face it bothers me. You remind me I'm left behind here to experience the end of the world. Stuck here while my flock won't be able to spend eternity with me in paradise. Pastor James' heart sank. Somehow, he was hoping to make a difference with his friend, but unfortunately, it looked as though he was just as lost as before. Bart continued, I know you think you're trying to help me, but it's really you who needs help. If only you could see what I see, experience what I've experienced, you'd know the truth, and it'll definitely set you free. I already heard what you told the FBI agents, Pastor James said, shaking his head. If it was going to make a difference, it would have by now. But do you think? Bart turned in his bed, glancing around the room. I didn't tell them everything. I told them only that which they could grasp. But a religious man such as you would. Yes, I think you can. Then you know. Yes, you'll see clearly then. I'll tell you. Pastor James figured if he could learn more about his friend, then and only then would he know how to help him. He nodded. Bart's face brightened. Where do I start? Oh yeah. First of all, do you have any questions about the dream I told the agents? No. It's straightforward. You dreamed of a plague that infected the entire planet. Everyone either died or killed him or herself in fear of getting sick. And you told your followers the only way to avoid this tragedy was to go to heaven before it all began. Well, yeah, that's basically it, minus a few crucial elements, but you got it. Let's continue on what happens after the global plague, said Bart. After the global plague, Pastor James said slowly, as something he had obviously forgotten tugged at his memory. Yeah, 
I left this out because what difference is it going to make if the agents know about it? It was more important for them to know of the plague to come so they can make the decision to follow my children's path or, well, nothing at all," said Bart. No life left on the earth other than three men, Pastor James mumbled softly. Bart stared at his friend in disbelief. What did you say? In your dream was all life on the planet dead? Fish, mammals, insects, bacteria? Except for three men? Asked the pastor. How did you? That's impossible. I told no one. No one. You're? I didn't even tell you, he said, sitting up in his bed. When did this happen? Tell me everything. Keiko sat at the desk in her hotel room going over her notes for her current case, but every so often she drifted to the situation, imposing itself upon her and Brooke. She desperately tried to make sense of Martin's actions but always came up with no logical explanation. She didn't know what to make of it. It made no sense. Yes, the man was perfectly within his right to pull the plug on the investigation when considering the present facts, but the way he did it was contrary to everything she knew about him. It was as though he was overly anxious to stop the investigation, not letting them clear up a few loose ends. Instinctively, it didn't feel right, and she'd always learned to listen to her instincts. Her case here was all but over. The other agents were ordered to wrap up their findings and report back, while she was ordered to remain behind to oversee the transfer of Bartholomew Yancey to a federal facility. She was also instructed to gather any further pertinent information from the cult leader before and after the transfer since he had developed a talking relationship with her. All perfectly understandable, but too coincidental to ignore. She just hoped Brooke kept her cool and was using her wits to piece together this puzzle. Keiko looked back at her notes and stared at an older picture of Prophet Barabbas, a picture taken way before the incident, while his followers were still alive. He seemed happy and unburdened compared to his current state. There were times she thought she saw a brief moment of doubt in his eyes regarding what he'd done. You? Why am I here? She said, jumping up from her chair and moving to the window. Looking outside, she realized it was still morning. It was a beautiful day outside, and she was wasting it inside a hotel room, deliberating and fussing over unanswerable facts. She decided to take a quick jog outside and clear her head. After changing into her exercise pants, a t-shirt, and running shoes, she walked outside the hotel and took a deep breath of the late morning air. Starting off with a slow jog to loosen the muscles, she decided to make her way down to the nearby lake a couple of miles away. Upon arriving at the lake, she estimated it was at least six miles to run the full length, and then another two to three miles back to the hotel, an invigorating run of approximately 10 to 11 miles. The path she followed ran close to the water's edge and wasn't difficult to traverse. It seemed as though it was normally used for such a purpose but today it seemed to be barren of any joggers. Halfway around the lake and running at a pace of one mile for every eight minutes, she heard someone quickly approaching her from behind. To her surprise, a young dark-skinned female teen on a mountain bike was quickly gaining on her. Not missing a step, Keiko moved to the side of the path away from the lake to make room for the biker. As the teen passed, she saluted Keiko and continued on her way, but then immediately applied her brakes. Still keeping stride, Keiko stared at the girl as she approached, wondering what made her stop so quickly. Hey, you're that FBI lady, right? Keiko waved her hand to say hello, without stopping. Wait, I need to talk to you. 
Keiko paused the timer on her watch and came to a stop. The last thing anyone should do is to stop a jogger when she's halfway in her run. She took a deep breath, trying to control her breathing, and slowly approached the team. Hey, I'm sorry to bother you, but I remembered your face as one of those agents when you guys were over there. At the investigation site, asked Keiko, not wanting to use any other words to describe the massacre of so many innocents. Yeah, I was there. I mean, on the other side of the fence. Saw you there talking to Pastor Everett. Keiko stared at the girl, hoping she would get to the point so she could be on her way. Well, nobody in town knows what's going on, and I was wondering what you guys gonna do with that prophet god. Keiko glanced at her watch. This is going nowhere, she thought. I'm sorry, that's official business. All I can tell you is that an official report will be released to the local authorities. At that point, they will update everyone. Now, I'm sorry, but I must go. Wait, the teen shouted as Keiko started to jog. Wait, a lot of those people who died had friends and relatives. Don't you think they have a right to know? As Keiko continued to gain distance, the teen shouted one more thing that made her stop. My sister was one of those members who died. She wasn't crazy and would never take her life. That prophet guy killed her and deserves to die. I don't care if she thought the world was coming to an end. She wouldn't do that. Keiko turned in motion for the girl to come closer. Who told you he said the world was coming to an end? My sister. Before she died, she texted me. And you decided not to tell the police about this. Look, we weren't really on talking terms, since she was rather spaced out with that cult thing. So I didn't really think of it until I heard. It was too late then. And what difference does it make if she contacted me? She's dead. The teen desperately tried to maintain her composure, but Keiko noticed how her eyes were starting to water. That man should die and go to hell for what he did. The girl mumbled. Feeling sorry for the teen's loss, Keiko softened her tone. I'm truly sorry for your loss. Did your sister say anything else to you? Wiping her eyes, she said. She sent me like five long texts. The weirdest thing she said was something the prophet told them. He said life is plotting to alter life to end life and will succeed because of life's inability to believe and stop what is to come. Look, she continued, my sister wasn't crazy. She graduated college near the top of her class and was really the only one in the family with any brains. It kills me to think someone can twist her up so much inside to make her think this junk. He needs to die. Keiko placed her hand on the girl's shoulder. All I can tell you is that justice will play its part. Prophet Barabbas will get what justice deems appropriate for his crimes. Now, you can help us in this matter by letting us have those texts your sister sent you. No. The teen pushed Keiko's hand back. That's all I have left of her. The last words from my big sister. There's no way in. Not the originals. Keiko interrupted, holding up her hands. Just copies. Give me your phone number and yours, and we'll access your account and look at the actual texts. It will not affect anything on your phone at all. Oh, sorry. Sure, I'll give them to you. Just make sure Prophet Barabbas rots in hell. Keiko smiled, got the information from the teen, allowed her to vent a little longer, and then was on her way. As the girl pulled away from her on her bike, Keiko stopped and put in the call to get the service provider to release the text conversation. She then increased her pace to quickly return to the hotel, as the information was promised to be available on her account within minutes. After Pastor James finished telling Bart all he remembered of his dream, confusion surrounded Bart. 
I don't understand. Everything you described was exactly how my dream was, except for the final words. Your dream said, they must be stopped. Time is short. All you have seen will come to pass unless, mine said, they can't be stopped. They are empowered to bring destruction. Creation will bow to their will and reap the destruction it deserves, except those who follows me. That's two similar visions, but separate interpretations. Which one's right? Asked Bart. For the first time, James saw doubt in his friend. He was definitely shaken by this revelation. I thought they only spoke to me. Why are they speaking to you? And why did they tell you something totally different? Bart was clenching his fists uncontrollably as he asked the questions. His entire foundation was beginning to crumble. Where once he was the sole recipient of the upcoming apocalypse, now another had received the vision, with a totally different message. This alone made him wonder if he had misinterpreted the vision and led his followers on the wrong course. Or did the message change after he hastily led his followers on a course that may have not been necessary? He looked at James and wondered why he was also chosen to receive the vision. Did he do something wrong in his interpretation, forcing them to find someone else to communicate with? It was all unthinkable, inconceivable. The weight of every one of his followers slowly began to weigh heavily upon him. Pastor James had a good idea where Bart's vision had come from, but how could he tell his friend that his vision of hopelessness wasn't completely truthful? For what vision would tell you to kill a multitude of your followers? There was only one source he knew of that would send such a message. The three men that remained, they were the orchestrators of this global apocalypse, right? Bart asked. Pastor James nodded. Then the hell they created, they deserved to spend the rest of their unnatural lives in. The vision told me it couldn't be stopped and to follow them. The ones that sent the vision. And to do that we followed them from this existence into the next. Right? That's what they were saying, right? He said more frantically. Pastor James shook his head. I could go only by what I've seen. And from what I've seen this isn't reality yet and can be avoided. There's still hope. You're wrong. Bart said, raising his voice. It said all creation will reap the destruction it deserves. This is judgment, James, where only the righteous will survive. It's judgment for the wickedness that covered this world for far too long. Then, why tell me something different with the same vision? Asked James. How am I supposed to know? Bart shouted. My friend, a vision is supposed to bring clarity and revelation. If what you've seen and heard from me now brings doubt, then it's not the right message you received. From my experience, there is only one spiritual being that twists the truth to its own agenda, leaving doubt, fear, and death afterwards. I'm afraid you've been misled. Prophet Barabbas Bartholomew Yancey's eyes glassed over as the words left Pastor James' mouth. He didn't know what to say, but deep down within, he felt the truth in the words. He felt alone, empty, and spent. From somewhere in the distance, he heard a deep, evil laugh. His hands flew immediately to his ears, but the laugh wasn't in the distance, but within his own mind. Pastor James watched in horror as his friend's hands flew over his ears, just before his eyes rolled up into his head, leaving only his white orbs visible. Bart collapsed on the bed, shaking in convulsions. The pastor immediately ran out the door, screaming for the doctor, as the prophet Barabbas desperately clung to life. Minutes later and several miles from the hospital, Keiko, entered the hotel lobby breathing harder than she normally would have. Since she had increased her pace, she rushed into her room and checked to see if the information she had asked for was on her computer. In seconds, 
she found the texts and quickly read them. Before doing anything with the information, she decided to take a quick shower and then update Brooke. Brooke was at her office desk when she received a call from Keiko. They talked casually for a few minutes before getting down to business. Life is plotting to alter life to end life and will succeed because of life's inability to believe and stop what is to come. Brooke repeated, confused, that makes no sense Kay. I mean, you know the man's a wackadoo, so what difference does it make what he says? If only you could listen to either him or Pastor James. It's hard to explain. It's crazy but I think there's something deeper going on here. Keiko responded. Brooke was silent for a while before saying, Are you becoming a disciple of Prophet Barabbas K? She jested. Very funny, said Keiko. Look, I'm going over the phone texts between these two girls, and it raises more questions than I can possibly answer without seeking an expert in this type of stuff. You mean the pastor? Asked Brooke. Yeah. Do you realize what you're doing? You're turning a normal investigation into something. I don't know. The man persuaded his followers to kill themselves. He's demented, hears voices in his head, and spews religious mumbo-jumbo. He admitted to these crimes and will pay the price for them. It's straightforward, Kay. I don't get you. I know, I know, said Keiko. But everything within me says this is only the tip of the iceberg. I don't know where it's going to go, but I've followed through. I just need to make sure Martin doesn't call me back for some stupid reason. He won't. He wants you there and me here. Make sure of it, said Keiko. Aye, aye, Captain, Brooke jested. Any new info on Fletcher? Keiko asked, ignoring Brooke's poor impersonation of Scotty from Star Trek. Brooke looked at the envelope on her desk. She had refused to open since it was dropped off in the morning. It was the local police report on Mr. and Mrs. Fletcher's deaths. She feared opening it, for when she did, it would bring closure to her case. Got the local police report right in front of me. Guess it's game over. Time to write this report and be done with it. Brooke said, dejected. If you find anything funky, let me know. Brooke, I got another call. Call you later. Bye. Brooke put her phone in her pocket and proceeded to open the envelope. After reading the first few pages, she put the report down. The incident was poorly investigated. There was no autopsy on the Fletchers, only a statement stating the severity of the burns on their bodies. There really wasn't much to investigate, not even a simple tissue toxicology test. The other matter was the maid who serviced their home. She was reported missing by her relatives several days after the gas explosion. Everything reeked of a cover-up, but if Martin wanted closure, then who was she not to give it to him? But these holes, she'd investigate them on her own. Minutes later, Brooks sat at her desk. Shocked that Martin had given her permission to travel to where the Fletchers died and meet with the investigators who generated the report. Her argument was that she wanted to bring complete closure to the entire report and could only do it in person, stressing she wanted to move on. It wasn't really a strong argument, but it was as though Martin really didn't care and just wanted her as far away from Benson Rockford and Jen some as possible. Benson sat quietly at his desk desperately trying to focus on the paperwork sitting in front of him. But his mind wandered to tomorrow's scheduled funeral for his late friend Daryl Fletcher. It made him wonder how short and unpredictable life was. One minute you're on top of the world, the next you're under it. One minute you're giving orders, the next someone's giving your eulogy. Was it all worth it? He was expected to say a few words at the funeral, but what exactly was he going to say about Daryl? Should he focus on Daryl's scientific career or should he talk about their personal relationship as friends? 
Intellectually, Daryl was extremely bright, but lacked the backbone and nerve to handle the dark side of the business. He lacked focus on blockbuster treatments that would generate income and wasted his time on unprofitable research. Benson decided to talk about their friendship, their good times and bad times together, and his regret that they wouldn't share other adventures in the future. It was time to move on. He couldn't let Daryl affect his current standing with Xi'al. He would bury his friend with kind words and comfort all that would miss him.